Welcome to this episode of Season 4 of The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and political analyst who has reached over 3.5 million listeners, viewers, and readers around the world. The Common Bridge is available on the Substack website and the Substack app. Just search for The Common Bridge. You can find the program on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. The Common Bridge draws guests and audiences from across the political spectrum, and we invite you to become a free or paid subscriber on your favorite medium. Hello, welcome to The Common Bridge. I'm your host, Rich Helpy. Today we have with us Rob Sand. Rob is the current state auditor for the state of Iowa. He recently won re-election, a very close race, and he's the only Democrat to win statewide office in the state of Iowa. Now, he's a champion of public service over politics. In fact, the Associated Press has said, and I quote, he is a political brand that transcends party lines, and he's gotten there by abandoning politics as usual, and instead he's trying to get away from the personal attacks and trying to treat people a lot better. And I think perhaps we're going to hear something about a man that is embodying the change that we hear so much desired by the readers, listeners, and viewers of The Common Bridge. So maybe, maybe green shoots that there is a fiercely nonpartisan way forward. Rob, welcome to The Common Bridge. Yeah, uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm I'm really excited about this and excited about the the community that you're building here because I think it's incredibly important. Um, so I'm I'm really excited to be here. Very glad to have a fellow Midwesterner here, and particularly someone that established yourself as a guy that will defend the other party if there's something unfair or untruthful in that attack. And you're asking even your own party to approach politics with persuasion and kindness, not venom and public venting. That can't make you that popular at cocktail parties, I would imagine. (laughs) Um, I definitely get a lot of people in my own party who tell me that I need to be more of a Democrat. I get people who tell me that I need, that I'm um, too nice. Um, Or, or, and some of what the weirdest thing is that the idea that somehow pushing back against the status quo isn't somehow soft, which is bizarre to me because actually the easiest thing to do is do what everyone else is doing. Then you don't stick out at all. I'm in a heated agreement with you on that because I see so many people playing team sports instead of politics. It's did my team win? Whether I'm And I, I just abhor this notion of red, blue, and purple. It's, it's nonsense and it's just further dividing us. But Rob, outside the state of Iowa, our audience probably doesn't know much about you. So if you could tell us a little bit, where were your early days and uh, maybe some of your early jobs and education and and jobs leading up to becoming the state auditor? Yeah, I was uh, born and raised in Decorah, Iowa. It's a town of about uh, seven or 8,000 people. You got to drive an hour to get to a four-lane uh, highway. First job was catching chickens. Uh, second job was working behind the counter at McDonald's. If you ever want to be totally super pumped about working at McDonald's, try catching chickens first. (laughs) What does the job of a chicken chaser actually do? Are they penned or are on that two-lane highway heading out to the four-laner? No, they are. uh, This is uh, industrial poultry operation. So I'd be in the barn, huge barn that we would drive these big trucks into, uh, or I wouldn't drive them. I was 14. 
but you know, the, the big trucks would get driven into the barn and then we'd climb down, turn out the lights because chickens can't see well in the dark and walk up behind them, grab them by the legs and hand them to the guys on the truck who'd uh, take them back uh, for processing. So uh, very dirty job. The only thing they've got left to do uh, once they're once you've grabbed them by the legs is kind of let it all out. Um, so you'd, you'd go home smelling, smelling like a barnyard. And my mom, if she caught me in time, would usually make me uh, make me take uh, my outer layers off outside of the house before I came inside. Those jobs, though, are so instructive because no one needs to tell you maybe you want to learn a trade or go to college and find some marketable skills because you don't want to be chasing chickens late into your 50s or anything. Now, I understand that you were a good student. You qualified and attended Brown University. You got a political science degree there. Yep. Loved growing up in the Midwest. Loved growing up in Iowa. Thought, hey, I don't know what it's like somewhere else. Maybe I should go see. And and really did enjoy my time in Rhode Island. Um, liked, liked being at Brown, but then came back when I was done because I went and saw. And then you went to law school at the University of Iowa. Yeah, I gotten admitted to Harvard as well. Uh, that was one of those choices that was um, actually easier than a lot of people oftentimes expect. I knew I wanted to do public service work. I knew that typically it's not very well paid. I knew I wanted to live in Iowa. And for those reasons, among others, I just thought, you know, it makes a lot more sense to be home, to go where I had a full ride. So I wasn't loading myself down with debt. And uh, to go where I would, you know, have a better chance of uh, getting to know people and, and, and building friendships. You know, having grown up in a, in a small town in the corner of the state, it's very far away from everything else. Uh, I didn't necessarily have a lot of high school friends uh, in, in Cedar Rapids or Des Moines and sure thought about going back to Decorah when I was done with law school. One of the main problems was some of my mom's friends were telling me who I should date if I moved back. So <laughs> that had your life mapped out for you. Well, we had Professor Derek Muller at Iowa. Do you know Derek? I don't know him personally, but I, I know uh, of the work he's doing over at Iowa. And I think we follow each other on Twitter. Yeah, he's a election law. It was a great guest. He's from Michigan. And uh, given that uh, Michigan's on its way to Arizona to play TCU, I suspect he may be coming in with a little maize and blue to work. And of course, Michigan's former quarterback's heading out to Iowa. Yeah, we're excited about that. He's a good player. He's good. He's a nice young man and a good player. So I, I wish him the best of luck, except when he's playing Michigan. Now, you were the chief public corruption officer. What exactly is that? And you had a couple of really big cases. Yeah, so I handled most of the public corruption prosecution in Iowa when I worked at the attorney general's office. I was assistant attorney general. There's a small division there of people who are handling uh, cases that county attorneys are referring to the attorney general's office. And if it was a financial crime, typically it was mine. And probably around half of those financial crimes were public corruption cases. So I got to see quite a bit of that. Worked on the Iowa Film Office tax credit scandal. We had one of those filmmaking tax credits that did not turn out to go so well. And then uh, later on, actually ended up uh, working on a case that turned into leading an investigation that uncovered the largest lottery rigging scheme in American history. It's a wild tale. There are Bigfoot hunters involved, Richard. Uh, it's, oh, a, it's pretty bizarre. I wrote a book about it that came out this year called The Winning Ticket. So you can pick that up wherever you like to buy your books. It is a fun read. It's a true crime book. It's not really much about politics. I note at the very end that I left the office shortly afterwards and ran, but that's about it. Called The Winning Ticket, Uncovering America's Biggest Lottery Scam. And I have not read the book yet, but I will. But you took on elected and appointed officials. You also 
knocked heads with Republicans, Democrats, attorneys, investment advisors, embezzlers, and other people that exploit the elderly. So there were a lot of guys on the bad guy side of that equation. So I'm fascinated to read about that. And it always amazes me that with so many easier ways to make an honest living, that someone would turn to that. Put that same effort, same intellect in a legitimate enterprise, they'd probably do a lot better. Yep. It is what it is. So, Rob, we've got this situation now in, in the country. The Democrats are saying, hey, you know what? Be really afraid of the Republicans. In fact, our president went on and, and basically lit up a, a segment of his opponent personally, which is something we've only seen in the last six or seven years. The Republicans are coming back. Hey, fear the Democrats. It's all about big tech, censorship, inflation. They're going to take your guns, etc. We've got this media environment that they're picking an audience. In fact, they're shaping the audience with their narrative. And new things just this week by reporters Matt Taibbi about how the publishing industry, the journalism industry has lost their way. And of course, that's one of the reasons we've gone to Substack. We think this new media model and then social media being manipulated. It's toxic. We can't get any place as a country if we're going to identify with the team versus a better future. And I know this is something near to your heart, and you've got some ideas and maybe some guidelines about how we get out of this morass. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Absolutely. I mean, a fundamental piece of that to me is We can't rely on each party to check the other because there's no interest in checks and balances coming from the other party. Right. So when if, you know, if somebody says something awful in the Democratic Party, if a Republican tells them it's awful, every Democrat just says, you know, shut up. We don't we don't you're you're a terrible person. We don't want to hear from you. And all of that rhetoric is just totally useless. At the end of the day, we have to have Democrats checking Democrats and Republicans checking Republicans, because that's the only point we are so tribalized here that the the criticism really has to come from your own tribe, you know, for it to be effective. And so one of the things that I have really worked at is doing that, you know, defending elected Republicans in Iowa when it's the right thing to do, criticizing Democrats when it's the right thing to do. And that doesn't mean that I, you know, I have to say it on every single thing that I see, but geez, we all ought to be saying it sometimes. And it's not particularly hard. It, all we're, all I'm saying we ought to be doing is doing the things that we were all raised to do. You know, remind people that it's good to be nice. Remind people that it's not nice to call names. Um, remind people that criticizing someone for something also makes other people who may have that trait feel criticized too. Uh, it's not It's not complicated stuff. And yet, you know, the more I have done it over the last four years, I oftentimes get pushback from Democrats who are upset that I'm defending a Republican. When at the end of the day, to me, it's I'm, I'm defending kindness. I'm defending decency. And the, ha- and the fact that it happens to be about someone with a particular letter behind their name, to me, doesn't matter. I mean, we have to, we, if we want to get to a better place where we can work together, where we can solve our problems, where we can be strong, we're going to have to put away some of the cruelty and, and some of the uh, partisanship that's gotten us to where we are right now. Indeed. And in recent days, we've had former President Trump invite someone, I think his name's Fuentes, or had dinner with him. They got together in some manner. And almost the next morning, there was this screaming going on on Twitter and other social media platforms and in certain publications saying, hey, no Republicans have condemned this. 
But my experience has been that we've had a, a number of these occasions where the story really wasn't a full story, but it's it's almost another way to attack the other side. They did something, uh, their own party's not condemning them, therefore they're all evil, therefore vote for us. But you've talked about a guiding principle about evil actions versus evil people. Isn't it a little odd that we're even having that as a conversation? Probably. Yeah. (laughs) I think you're right about that. That to me is just one of those things that, and this goes back a long ways. I mean, I remember, boy, when I, this is, you know, before I was running in 2018, it was probably a couple of years before that. It was pre-Trump even. We still had, even in the Democratic Party, this sort of like, oh, that that's a bad person. You shouldn't you shouldn't say anything nice about them. I have, I have one specific recollection about it where Chief Justice John Roberts gave a graduation speech at a really highfalutin DC private high school. You know, where all the kids there, I'm sure, are daughter sons and daughters of the most wealthy and powerful people in the area. And and what impressed me about this the piece of the speech that I saw was that he said, you know, something to the effect of you know, I hope you have failure in your life because that'll help you have empathy for people who have failed. I hope you have to struggle in your life because it will give you empathy for people whose life is mostly made of struggle. And a lot of just sort of like reminding them of their positions in society and their privilege in a way that I thought was effective and nurturing while at the same time, you know, being serious about the fact they had all these advantages. And I remember sharing that on Facebook and having friends of mine say, well, you shouldn't share anything by John Roberts, he's a terrible guy. You know, I disagree with most of, I can't say, well, I disagree with plenty of his decisions. Uh, Citizens United is a travesty uh, to the American uh, democracy and, and our campaign finance system. But he had a good point that day. And I feel like when we, when somebody has a good point, we have to be willing to say, hey, wait a minute. Okay, this is someone that I don't tend to be in love with. But I think right there, you know, as the saying, the saying goes in Iowa, even a blind hog finds an acorn every now and then, you know. Indeed. And if you think about former Attorney General Bill Barr, yeah, a lot of scathing opinions on him. And if you kind of unwrap the facts on it, it, less than a month after the November 6th election in 2020, he's in the office of the president of the United States telling him, hey, all this stuff you're saying about a stolen election is bullshit. And then he said, I resigned. I'm not going to handle this. He went from zero to hero. There was actually a, another, a podcast run by some left wingers, and they're going to review his book. And they all proudly got on the podcast and said, well, we're not going to actually read his book. Because <laughs> like, really? Bill Barr had some interesting things to say. And was he a great attorney general? I don't know. It's a matter uh, of opinion, but he got some things right. Yeah. And I, and I think we can, you know, fr- from from zero to hero is one way to put it. And I like to, you know, say, like, hate the sin, love the sinner. You know, if we can if we can just look at Bill Barr's actions and we can say, well, I disagree with this and this and this that he did. On the other hand, I'm glad that when this happened, he did that. We should judge him in whole. There are moments in his life where he's been a zero and moments in his life where he's been a hero. Right. And there's and there were so many things like, oh, we've we've got him now because this particular judge was throwing something at him that turned out to be nonsense. But you never hear the follow up that, yeah, that accusation that we threw, that mud that we threw, it turned out to be nonsense and not true. But it sticks there. And again, I, I point a lot of the blame there at the the reporting. You also talk about being the change and, and um, engaging in productive political discourse. 
And it's a more politically diverse world, of course, you know, with more than a binary Republican versus Democrat world. How do you go about being the change? Yeah, um, th- th- this is something that's been important to me my whole life. Um, I think a little bit of it is, is faith based for me uh, in the Christian faith, really trying to focus people on the idea that we should uh, we should see everyone as God's child and, and try to uh, take them at their best intentions and, and try to create harmony and be a peacemaker in the world. So that's a piece of that to me. You know, one one way that, that I've done that when I was in college at Brown, I actually put together a class on conservatism. Brown is well known for being a liberal school. I didn't attend there thinking that I was a conservative, but I thought, but while I was there, I thought, I'm not really getting enough exposure to conservative ideas. I want to do more here. And so that to me was a great class because it really helped illustrate to me as we as we took it together, a group of conservative students and, and moderates and more liberal folks that a lot of times we agreed on what the end goal was. We just really disagreed about the route for getting there. And and once you once you can, if you have that understanding, the differences are much less scary. And I know, and you know, that doesn't mean that's true for everybody. And certainly uh, with the rise of social media and the cleave that we have had between the ends and the extremes, we do have people whose goals are very different. But still, you know, finding ways to engage with people that's productive or at least persuasive, even if not to the person you're engaging with, but to the to the wallflowers, it's an imperative. If you want good things to happen in the world, you better be good at fighting for them, not just fighting for them. You have to be good at it. So, and I guess in the auditor's office, you know, one of the first decisions I made was who was going to have the top spots in the office. I actually appointed an independent and a Republican to our two deputy positions in the office. And so our, our, our senior leadership team in the office was tripartisan, you know, a, a, a Dem and a Republican and an, and an Indy. And the other thing was that they both had made actually campaign contributions to my opponent. I was, I, re, I had run against an incumbent. They knew that incumbent, supported her campaign, but I didn't take that as an opportunity. Well, I frankly, I mean, Richard, I took it as an opportunity to say who I was. I don't want to be the guy who says, oh, if you oppose me politically, I'm going to punish you for it. That's not public service. I want to be the guy that says, well, there's different ways of thinking in the world. And, uh, you know, I want to have people on my team who think differently than I do, because that's going to help me reach better decisions because I'm going to get asked better questions. Well, you said a very important word earlier on when we're talking about this. You used the word goal. And that's been my experience, too. Like, what's the goal? Yeah. Do, do we want to get children educated? All right, let's start there. All right, now, is there more than one path to reach that goal? You know, and what are the best ideas? And almost anything can be dealt with. Do we want safe neighborhoods? I think people would say that. Do we want there to be fentanyl invading our society? And yet- yes. We're stuck with all these problems because of this deep partisan divide, reaching a goal, there's not enough reward, attacking and demonizing the other side, that is the reward. Case in point, look at this, it's a ridiculous place we're in, but it's a great example, this runoff in Georgia. Have you Has anyone heard anything on a positive basis yeah. about either of the candidates? Yep. Neither one of them belong in the United States Senate, and they just want to each want to make the other one appear so bad that they won't pick them. And that's why we've got this, you know, 49 to 49% divide there, because they've each succeeded on scaring enough of their own base. That's right. 
Well, and I that that goes back to something that I'm I'm sure you're incredibly familiar with with a guy as a guy with a private sector background. Duopolies don't work. No, they don't. They don't. If you want to serve, if you want the consumer to be served, you need to have an actual market where the consumer has choices. And and citizens are not consumers, but as long as if we want to th- look at it through that lens, you know, you're right. Uh, at the, at the bottom of the t- at the at the at the end of the day, the bottom dollar, the bottom line. When you have only two choices, each of those choices understands. I don't have to have you love me. I just have to have you hate the other one more than you hate me. And it could be by name calling. What I encourage people to do is ask the second question. And I've been spending some time researching some of the school districts. And people are making this case, well, they've become partisan. They've become extremists. And I said, okay, how can that be? Well, they're banning books. I said, okay, that sounds serious. What books have they banned? And it's dead silence. Well, you know, there's certain books that maybe shouldn't be available to a a third grader. So this perspective of looking at goals and looking at behavior versus vilification, are we going to get that from people that have been trained in the current political system? Or is there going to be more of an appeal to an outsider? Yeah, I, I, it's certainly harder. It's no doubt harder. Um, this is something, you know, I, I worked on campaigns. Um, I've volunteered for campaigns. So I'm familiar with the way the current system works. And yet I'm really committed to doing it differently because I care that much about doing it differently. And I think it's that broken the way we're doing it now. Um, so at the, the bottom line, I think, is in finding the in, in who we can get this from, it's people who are going to demonstrate an actual track record of having done it. And, and then the trick of that is supporting them. I was actually able to get uh, over 30 Republican, conservative and libertarian leaders in Iowa to endorse my reelection, despite the fact that I have a D behind my name, um, because I was so plainly committed to sort of what I call anti-partisanship. Bipartisanship continues the fiction that there's two ways to think, you know, and it's and that if well, if you have you must be this position on that and that position on that and that position on that to be in this party instead of the ability to think for yourselves. And so I like the idea of anti-partisanship. You know, all the founders warned us about partisanship. They all said one of the greatest risks. I like the John Adams quote. One of the greatest uh, evils possible under this Constitution is two great parties united only in their hatred for each other. We are living his nightmare. Indeed. Yeah. And so to me, uh, you know, we can find those people anywhere. It's just a question of when you, you, you got to, you got to trust them when they show you what they're saying. And so, like you said, you know, I had a, I had a close race this time. Maybe the only reason that I won uh, was because I was willing to do things differently. And then, and then some people on the, if again, the fictional aisle, uh, on the other side of the divide, we're willing to put their neck out for me and say, hey, I may be a Republican, I may be a conservative, but I'm endorsing Sand because he's doing things differently and he's doing things the right way. And so I think that's a piece of what it takes too. If we if we want, if this is truly what we want, then we've got to put our name and our, and our money on the line to say, you know, this is someone that I'm supporting. So we were able to have people who were donors and people who were endorsers who just said, yeah, I, I want more of this, you know? And, and look, everybody wants our government to work. And when we talk about goals in a private sector setting, you have to satisfy a customer. 
And if you don't, you, you don't get to be in business anymore. That's right. Uh, you've got to make sure that the customer likes it. And yet, you know, you look at on the public sector side, uh, very, very little that we do in the public sector is rated high. And, yeah. you know, you can see why that occurs as the, as the partisanship gets baked in. It's kind of a class of people I find interesting. They're, they're nice people. They're not unintelligent. Classic profile that, you know, were raised in New York you know, went to school on the East Coast, yeah. went to work for a political campaign, went to work for a congressional person and got caught up in politics. And that's what they do. They never chase a chicken in Iowa. They never tighten an auto part in Detroit. And yet they've got this idea about uh, politics being beat the other guy and not getting the idea like, well, what do, what is it yeah. we want the government to do? And some of that, of course, morphs into who's there. How do they that's get there? We talk about voting system. And I've had people on the show talking about ranked choice voting and proportional yes. representation and other ideas like that. Again, not necessarily an endorsement, but just presenting for our audience on the common bridge. You like the idea of a jungle primary. Well, jungle primary combined with ranked choice, you know, Calif because California, you know, they do the jungle primary and then send the final two. But then you just have a duopoly for the general election again. And so the same the same corrupt incentives are there to really serve yourself as opposed to serving the public. And similarly, you know, if you do rank choice, but it's only among party nominees, then you have the party choosing it. So so what I really like is what we call, you know, final five voting or final four voting. It's the Alaska system. You have an open primary. Everyone has the same uh, right to participate, including independent voters. And then the top four or five vote getters go to the general and then you do rank choice or an idea I like, I don't know if I'm the only person who's come up with it, but it's just simple review voting. Fill in, everybody gets ranked uh, or, or rated. So if you love a candidate, give them five ovals. If you're okay with them, give them three ovals. If you think they're the spawn of Satan, give them one oval. And then you just average them on election night. You're going to get quicker returns. And the highest average review, the average, highest average number of ovals wins the election. We buy a lot of products on Amazon out of five stars. Yes. And, yes. And, uh, we don't, but we do get these false choices. Now, one of the things that would be interesting about a jungle primary and a ranked choice voting is today it seems to favor the Democrats, which it certainly did in Alaska. California, effectively, it's a one-party state. And there might be critics of yours that say, well, of course, you'd like to see that as a Democrat in Iowa, because that would benefit more Democrats than Republicans at this point in our history. I don't think it benefits either party. I think it benefits the public. I think you get better Democrats and better Republicans elected with it, period. And I, I frankly, you know, uh, in fact, look at Mary uh, getting elected to the state, uh, to the to the U.S. House of Representatives, uh, the Democrat in Alaska. She had endorsed Lisa Murkowski for her re-election, the Republican, and, and Murkowski had endorsed her back. I mean, that is the kind of attitude that is a, that I think is fostered and actually encouraged by final five voting that you don't get. Uh, with the current system, because your own party is going to yell and scream at you and tell you you're, you know, a terrible, evil person or a sellout or something like that, as opposed to just being a human being who says, hey, I'm committed to working with people that I disagree with on some stuff. There's so many things that we agree on that we're going to just try to focus on those and get those things done. And I think by working together on that, everyone can feel more represented. 
They also have a coalition government right now in, mm-hmm. in Alaska. Uh, Democrats and Republicans working together and leaving out a few extremists. So I don't, you know, uh, if they put this system in place in California, I think they should do this everywhere, not just in Iowa. Maybe it would benefit Republicans in California. Again, at the end of the day, I think what it leads to is is less about partisanship and more about public service. And so if it benefits one party here and one party there, I think that's only incidental in the bigger link to public service. And frankly, you know, popularism, not necessarily populism, but popularism, where Mm -hmm. every candidate can look at an issue and say, you know, boy, 70% of people believe in this. I've always kind of gone back and forth, but I suppose maybe I should support it. And then we could actually have, you know, a a great, uh, I would love to have a great period of time in American history where with this system, we end up pursuing and enacting a lot of good changes that everyone, not everyone, but the broad cross section of society thinks that we need. And some of them will be ideas from the Republican side of the aisle. Some of them will be ideas from the Democratic side of the aisle. But the key is that they're all going to be popular. And to me, that's a huge, uh, huge boon and a huge reason to do this. Because right now, right now, I, you know, I've proposed numerous ideas here in Iowa saying, hey, you know, we should do this. We should do that. Ideas that should be popular. And everybody says, oh, you know, they like the idea. They think it's fine, but they don't want to do it because you have a D behind your name. And they don't want to do anything that might possibly make a Democrat look good. Yeah, that that happens. That, that happens across the board. Um, we can't say that this was a good solution because somebody else might get the credit. Um, yeah, I, look, it's clearly that we need to do other things. And Rob, this has been a, a actually a great start to a conversation. I hope that we can maybe have a couple of focused conversations in the future. But as we move toward the end of our time today, if you could just kind of talk about what policy changes you'd like to see if there's something we didn't talk about or any you know yeah. kind of summary comments I'd sure like to hear about those yeah you know I it, I mean the, the big one to me and I think it should be kind of everybody's priority would be uh, you know giving independence and equal right to participate as voters and then making it so that it's not the lesser of two evils uh, in in every November election I think that that change would make it possible to solve a lot of other problems. And so that, that would be great. Uh, beyond that, you know, I, I like the idea of, of simplifying things and again, making finding other ways to make them less partisan. Uh, in Nebraska, the legislative elections are not partisan. You, you don't have a, you don't run as a member of a party. You don't have your party on the ballot. I think that would force people to educate themselves a little bit more about who the candidates are. Mm-hmm. And even though you have, you know, oftentimes, indications of uh, if you if you wanted to pretend the world uh, could be simply divided into two camps, you could find ways to do it. But it reemphasizes to people systemically that we really should be trying to pick leaders and trying to pick servants as opposed to trying to pick cheerleaders. So that's another example I think that would be a great move. Well, I love the way you phrase that. Rather than picking cheerleaders, picking you know competent people that are going yeah. after the, the right goals and getting us out of that binary way of thinking. And, you know, even some of the primaries uh, now, you know, whether you can manipulate the other party's uh, primary to, to, to come out the way that you want it, which we saw a lot of in the uh, midterms. And the Democratic Party today saying that I was no longer going to be first in the nation. 
yeah. because they've uh, lost, uh, I guess, too many of the statewide initiatives right. and such. Rob, this has been a, a great conversation. Anything you'd like the listeners, readers, and viewers of The Common Bridge to hear? I want the conversation to continue. I love hearing from people. Uh, any listener can follow me on Twitter at Rob Sand IA. I'm on Facebook and Instagram, same location, Rob Sand IA. Uh, shoot me a message. I will be the one responding to you. Um, send me something that you think is good reading about some other reform out there that promotes public service over partisanship. I'd love to hear about it. That's a great uh, opportunity, I think, for our audience. And so with our guest, state auditor from Iowa, Rob Sand, talking about bringing politics back to service, to goals, getting the uh, evil intent out of it, something we can all hope for. I'm your host, Rich Helpy, signing off on The Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Subscribe to The Common Bridge on Substack.com or use their Substack app where you can find more interviews, columns, videos, and nonpartisan discussions of the day. Just search for The Common Bridge. You can also find The Common Bridge on Mission Control Radio on your Radio Garden app.